Today's episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Field Notes. Field Notes brand, USA-made memo books and other products, including seasonal limited editions. Visit fieldnotesbrand.com or 400 North May in Chicago for more information. Thanks, Field Notes! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Arnault, this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast, and we're about to go on tour. What? Yes, really! This episode you're listening to is the first part of my tour kickoff party from Chicago, recorded just last night. As I explained in the live portion of this episode, I've got some time off between jobs, so I thought I'd fulfill a dream of mine and hit the road. And fortunately, I have a sweet show to take with me. So my dog and I will be traveling to a bunch of major cities west of Chicago over the next couple weeks. So if we're coming by you, hey, swing by and see us. Uh, I'll tell you the schedule in a minute. But first, I have to tell you that in this episode, you'll enjoy pieces from a handful of fine folks I've traveled with before, including Andrew Bentley, Mary Beth Smith, Troy Hayes, and music from myself, Dwight Hassler, Katie Johnston-Smith, and special guest, Chris Blake. Alright, so here is my tour schedule. There's potential for one more date to get added, but right now, here's where you can catch me. Tuesday, May 9th, 10 p.m. at the Voodoo Comedy Playhouse in Denver. Friday, May 12th, 7 p.m. at Nerd Melt in Los Angeles. Saturday, May 13th, 6 p.m. at Knockout in San Francisco. Sunday, May 14th, 8 p.m. at Wayward Coffee House in Seattle. Friday, May 19th, 6 p.m. at Nomad Club in Minneapolis. I've also got a private show today in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, you can't go to that one, but you'll hear it soon enough. If you want to support, support the tour, and you can't make it to any of these, here's what you can do. First, tell your friends in these cities. We'd love to see some friendly faces. Or, you can follow along on Patreon. People who donate at the $5 level or more will have access to day-after audio of every show I record. And I'll try to throw in some bonus audio diary entries for the days I don't have shows. So to do that, go to patreon.com slash we would greatly appreciate your support. Uh, this is going to be a blast, guys. You'll be hearing some pretty different stuff from a lot of different places over the next few months. I hope you're as excited as I am. So, let's get this tour kicked off. Ambition. 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 
Uh, but yeah, so this is gonna be a more casual show than normal because it is—it's a kickoff party. I just wanted a cool night with some friends and some love in the room to send me off on this two-week thing that I'm doing. Uh, so I asked Chris to play some songs with us because these are songs that we played together before, not at this show. And uh, I don't know this—this this first song we're gonna play—it's kind of been like a theme song for me, and it's—it's it's like a very good road anthem, right? I Yo, think this is absolutely like start the car, play the song, and go. Yeah, like it, if I'm listening to this song and I'm not driving 80 miles an hour, it makes me angry. <laughs> so uh, I'll kick this on as soon as I get out of Chicago proper tomorrow. But uh, this is by Japan Droids. This is called "Near to the Wild Heart of Life." One, two, three, four.
song. Thank you, Chris. Chris doesn't usually play with us, but man, I love playing with Chris. You'll see him later. Uh, so we're only doing one song at the top of the show tonight because I wanted to get to some stories. So I've invited a bunch of people here who either I've traveled with before or I would love to travel with. Uh, coming next to the stage, we have the other half of Rabbit Rabbit, former Nerdalogs member uh, and also a wonderful storyteller and friend, Mr. Andrew Bentley. Yeah! Hello, I'm Andrew Bentley. Gather ye round and I'll spin you a tale of the final journey of the Flying V. The Flying V was a red Volvo purchased in the early 90s and manufactured sometime before cars were actually invented. (laughs) She was an aged vessel, but sturdy, and yes, I say she, no other gender would do, for she was mistress and mother both to such a rabble of awkward, gopping virgin men and sad boys that ne'er the world has seen their like again. Party lads we were and true, ripe for all manner of gamble and jape, transmuting with reckless alchemy our sexual frustration into fire, garbage, and regurgitated puddles of old granddad. Many the curbside was christened with vomit from the vantage of her passenger door, many the parking lot tattooed with melted rubber. Her captain was a stalwart chap named Christopher Rorys, a name which has graced my stories before, usually in concord with some act of keen and abominable mischief. (laughs) Our chariot in these triumphs was rarely other than the flying V. We were graduated high school by the time the V entered our lives. Chris had not procured his driver's license until the age of 19, because he couldn't be bothered to take the practical exam or, if I'm being entirely honest, to learn how to drive. (laughs) On his 19th birthday, he had simply strolled down to the DMV, answered a few questions about stoplights and three-point turns, and walked away with permission from the state of Virginia to hurl 3,000 pounds of rusted metal down her highways as fast as the Vexum laws of physics would permit. (laughs) I was but a month or so into college when the V made her first desperate plummet down I-95 to Christopher Newport University and fetched up on the shores of my dorm. Now, the unorthodox way in which Chris had outweighed the state for his license was well known to me, but I had no car and neither did my friends. Well, Rob had one, but he was rarely sober enough to find it, leaving aside operation. (laughs) Worse yet, CNU was a dry campus. If we wanted to drink in circumstances somewhat louder or cheerier than Anne Frank's bat mitzvah, we had two choices. One, be much cooler than we actually were, or two, Travel 20 miles up the road to William and Mary, where either the students were less cool or we were granted enough exotic outsider charm that our coolness would only be undercut by the time it was too late to kick us out. Uh, My friend John was pledging a fret there, and the parties were plentiful. Well, technically, John was pledging the shadow of a fret. Uh, Their particular chapter had been disowned after the brothers threw a couch out a window and it landed on a girl's face. Uh, Their charter had been revoked, while the victim had suffered a broken nose and continued to date one of the brothers and make frequent appearances at their parties, like the ghost of Banquo in a tube top and Uggs. (laughs) This, This was our Valhalla. And the Rainbow Bridge was 20 miles of forested highway traversable by no public transportation. And so, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man was our chauffeur. And we lavished our cyclops with fervent love. (laughs) Throughout my freshman year, the V would appear on our campus with regularity, as red and as pregnant with the promise of celebration as the Kool-Aid man himself. (laughs) With a proverbial, oh yeah, Chris would hurtle into the parking lot, burst through the wall of our tedium, and we would prostrate ourselves before him and sup from his prodigal bounty. (laughs) This continued through the ice-slick roads of winter and the flooding rains of spring. Practice did not make perfect. At least, not as most motorists would regard it, or pedestrians, or rhinoceri. 
Chris did not become a better driver in the normal sense of learning to obey the rules of the road. Uh, he became an expert at violating them. It's been said that Black Sabbath guitarist Tony Iommi was such a unique guitarist because, not in spite of, his maimed hands. The Flying V was Chris's guitar. He knew her timing to an absolute fault. During breaks from school, back in our even more boring suburb, we would enlist the V in fun runs. Fun runs consisted of driving up and down the Fairfax County Parkway in the middle of the night, drinking in the back seat, and shooting bottle rockets onto the road from a tube braced against the passenger side view. Through the sunroof, our inebriates would shoot Roman candles. Chris knew how to gun the V at just the right moment so that when the skipping rocket exploded in the dark asphalt, we would plow right through it, showering our windshield with vibrant sparks. He could take an exit on a dime should the telltale flash of blue and red lights threaten to drown our reign of terror in entirely justified consequences. (laughs) He wasn't a, a classical driver. He was jazz. It was the laws he didn't obey that made him a virtuoso. Like... Like Werner Herzog's grizzly man, we eventually lost our advisable caution to the banality of habit. If if you've seen grizzly man, you know how this analogy ends. Uh, One Saturday in April, a night like many before, five of us embarked on our oft-tread journey. It was a night of endings. Our last trip that year to John's frat for one. For another, my friend Ryan would confide between his third and fourth beer that night that he hadn't been to class all semester and would definitely be expelled. And of course, the final voyage of the Flying V. What was different that night, I could not say. From my vantage in shotgun, Route 64 looked the same as ever, but something imperceptible must have shifted. Captain Rory's lunatic precision was short that crucial degree. That single inch between genius and madness was lost, and our vector shifted for the insidious reefs of the Virginia interstate system. Barely five minutes into the trip, Chris missed our exit. That is to say, a a landlubber would term it missed. That was it, I said, pointing four lanes over to the right as the fast-approaching off-ramp. I assumed we would take the next exit and circle round. A less courageous man than Captain Rory's might well have. That coward might have looked and quailed and not slammed the car impossibly sideways, perpendicular to all previous momentum, across three lanes of unseen traffic and into the exit lane, with only the damned chorus of backseat penitents screaming in horror to herald or trumpet his flight through a non-Euclidean rift in reality. (laughs) A man who believed in physics could not have made that exit. I swear it. His knowledge would have slowed him. His fear would have cut his hand and by it slain us all. Yet Captain Rory's made it with the same alacrity as a blind samurai splitting a reed. For what it's worth, he did use a turn signal. (laughs) We could say nothing. None of us. Chris didn't notice. The only sound was the oblivious crooning of Ace of Bass on the iPod hookup. One song ended, another began. We were silent. Minutes passed, and we cruised into Williamsburg. There was our turn on the right. There was us in the left lane. There was the speedometer somewhere between 50 and the speed of sound. (laughs) Wait, I thought. Don't tell him. We'll make a U-turn. I bit my tongue. Right here, said Brandon. No, I screamed. I'm sure I did. (laughs) But our captain heard nothing over the roar of the ocean and the pound of his lion's heart. (laughs) We made the turn. The flying V did not slow. It simply turned, as if caught on the hook of a monstrous unseen reel. She howled into the single-lane residential street. She struck the curb and bounced, and Ryan was thrown against his door, and then the door was gone, open, and Ryan was gone, out there, outside, by God, he was outside the car, all but his leg in his hand, clutching my seat as he flapped in the wind like a pennant, 
I turned to him and looked into the eyes of a man who knew he was about to die. (laughs) (laughs) And then, as Newton demands, he returned. The momentum of our ricocheting shuttle deposited him inside. The door slammed shut behind him. Whoa, said Chris. (laughs) The rest of the night is a blur. The specifics of its bacchanalia indiscernible from so many bloodshot brothers. Was it the night I got drunk and shaved all my pubic hair, or the night I got drunk and fell off a wall singing chim chimini chim chimini? Who can say? (laughs) It's unimportant. It's unimportant how we arrived home as we did. Some vital fuel had sparked its last. The next year I had friends with houses and friends with cars, and these things were vaccine to the wanderlust which had struck us as freshmen, almost struck us down. The age of the flying V was over, and she would fly no more. Well, really, what happened was Chris learned to fucking drive, and going to the mall with him didn't necessarily mean you were dry-humping the Grim Reaper anymore. (laughs) But with basic automotive skills, something was lost. That old red Volvo would forevermore be bound by the chains of terrestrial possibility. And while we would many times more venture to John's fret, they were magicless translations. Nevermore would they be blessed with the impossibility of mortal flight, or we ourselves with that same nobility, the doomed and desperate grace of the sea-tossed sailor, the proud and foolish crew of the Flying V. Thank you. Everybody. That was tremendous. Oh my god, tremendous and horrifying. I'm glad, glad you're alive. I do think there's something like I don't know if you guys have ever driven in Manhattan, but I think like you need a little bit of madness to drive in like uh, the urban environment of New York City. But uh, oh shit, um, that's gonna be running through my head too. I'm gonna be super careful. Also, seat, seat belts don't work on my dog, so that's like another reason to drive really careful. Don't be sad. She'll be fine. She'll probably be fine, guys. <laughs> Coming up next to the stage, I have been to Seattle with this woman twice, I think, at least twice. She will not be with me on my third time, sadly, but she's here right now, Mary Beth Smith. Uh, The last time I did your stories, I complimented the women of Cover Stories shoes, and Garn was like, what about me? And I was like, I said what I said, uh, but I've noticed since then, he bought a new pair of shoes for this trip. <laughs> I'm going to call them out. They look nice, guys. They look pretty nice. I bought them at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. You know, style, style. <laughs> uh, so I thought about uh, singing uh, my favorite, like, road trip song. It was the song that I was listening to. Uh, when I moved up to Chicago, uh, it's a, a swell season song called Feeling the Pull. And the opening line is, uh, well, I'm heading back to pack a bag to head out on the road and take away what I know is mine. And I think that's just like a really nice uh, sentiment um, heading into a trip. So maybe I'll uh, remind you to throw it on your playlist or something like that, because I'm not going to sing it. Uh, <laughs> but what I am going to do uh, in the spirit of Garn, um, you know, trying to do something that he's never done before, but kind of always wanted to, that's maybe a little scary, and uh, uh, he maybe didn't have, like, as much planning for it as uh, time for it as he may have wanted to, but seems to have still put together a really wonderful tour. Um, I'm going to do some stand-up. Uh, <laughs> 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 Me 
in, you guys are like proving exactly why I knew this was going to be a room that I could do this in. Because <laughs> I've said zero jokes, and that was like the warmest response I've ever gotten to doing anything. Uh, so uh, I, I've been having trouble recently uh, differentiating between things that people like genuinely versus things that they like ironically. Uh, and while I do think, uh, I, I, I truly do think that there are people who genuinely like things ironically. Uh, uh, take, for instance, um, The Bachelor-like family of television shows. <laughs> I'm sure there are too many people out there who are all, yes, love is a game meant to be played and I won't stop at nothing until I win the prize of man. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I think there are plenty of people who dig those bad boys for uh, who know like full well because they have the common sense to see how messed up it is. But they enjoy them anyway on this, you know, ironic wave of toxicity. Uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. Some of the same bitches who are watching these shows are whining about the lack of respect for women. Hell, some of these bitches are upset that I just called a group of people bitches. <laughs> but here we are, and and people are kind of just lapping up this exploitative drool that it makes celebrities out of nobodies, and nobodies out of the siblings of celebrities. Looking at you, Aaron Rodgers' brother, whose name I do not know. <laughs> uh, but it's gotten to the point where I have heard my coworker on more than one occasion brag about the fact that he went to college with one of the bachelors. That tells you two things. That he watches a lot of the series The Bachelor and that he's very uninteresting. <laughs> now, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to stand here and say that I've never watched a dating show and that I'm above them because that is very untrue. I watched every episode of The Flavor of Love. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some of them twice. <laughs> uh, but to me, there's a layer of like bad, ironic separation with a show like that. Uh, it's just inherent in having Flavor Flav as a love interest. <laughs> uh, Flav is a flanderization of what sheltered middle American kids think a rapper is. <laughs> like, for sure. Uh, on the show, he, there was like another layer of separation in that he would give every woman a nickname. And uh, I think part of that was so that he wouldn't have to learn their actual names. <laughs> and part of that was so that they legitimately had a, a characterized separation of self, which I think the Bachelor and Bachelorette contestants have to do. But uh, when they get back home, it might be a little more of a, a complicated conversation to have with their loved ones. But um, <laughs> saying that he gave them a nickname is in itself pretty generous because one of the women's nicknames was Wire! <laughs> Wire? Wire was the nickname that he gave to a woman. I guess my point is that Chris Harrison is more of a public enemy than Flavor Flav ever was. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Having a black bachelor is so scandalous a thought that it led to a big cocaine sex party when the producers of a fake reality dating show on a lifetime television series pulled it off. That's a true story. Check out Unreal, you guys. Uh, <laughs> 
I will definitely cop to ironically liking most of Flavor of Love, but I still think there's room to genuinely love things that are inherently silly. Uh, for instance, I'm a huge fan of the young adult book series, The Animorphs. <laughs> and I know I actually genuinely love it because I went back and read the first four books uh, in recent memory, uh, you know, for like the only reason that anyone has hobbies these days because I was going to start a podcast about them. <laughs> um, but I genuinely think there was some killer stuff in those books. <laughs> in the first book helmed by Rachel, the kind of like, warrior queen badass of the group who is like a blonde gymnast and a, a real looker uh she calls her friend and fellow anamorph a sexist for referring to a woman as a skank these books were written in like 95 <laughs> shows like friends were still using pejoratives when a character wore the quote-unquote wrong bag and and oh um all of the teens could acquire and morph into animals, and that fact is important to the rest of this joke, so if you're not familiar with the book series, uh, you're pretty much caught up. There's some stuff about aliens. We could talk about it after the show. Um, believe me, I will talk to you about it after the show. Uh, but there's a passage in the same book where uh, Rachel is essentially catcalled and subsequently followed, and uh, she is a teenaged high school girl, mind you, and she's kind of seething with anger and fear, and it's written from her perspective, so you're kind of getting a little bit of insight into that. And then she suddenly realized she can start turning into an elephant. <laughs> that is amazing. She turns around to this creep to reveal that she has like a fleshy proboscis and exaggerated ears and her hands and feet are bulging. And of course the dude runs away because that is fucking terrifying. <laughs> and so badass. I mean, if, if, Women could do that, we would do it all the time. <laughs> and we would go through so many pairs of shoes. <laughs> and it would be worth it. And we would do it anyway. I mean, catcalling and female endangerment is real as fuck. And they address it in book two of the Animorph series. It took the television show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a TV show about cops, four seasons to attempt to address racial profiling <laughs> it was really good though but like it was really good apples and oranges sure sure but damn k.a applegate get it girl yes uh i i really like wondering how authors like applegate land on like ideas for book series um but a thing that i definitely ponder more is uh how the trial and error involved in like figuring out what we could eat and drink. Because, <laughs> like, if you think about it for a second, coffee at its core is fucking baffling. I mean, somebody took these, like, bean fruits, and I don't know, maybe just tried to soak them in water as is, and we're like, mm, doesn't taste great. Let's put them in a pot, throw some fire under it, roast these bad boys, try it again, still no, not much flavor involved. Maybe we mash them up, then pour some water through them, strain all the bad stuff out. Okay, this is crazy, but it tastes 
still just okay. <laughs> like, we might have to add some stuff to it, and it'll taste decent. <laughs> uh, I like The idea of tea is less weird, but still, you know, some suckers had to mash up, like, oak leaves or some shit and try that and realize it was bad and dry them out and realize it was still bad and try new leaves and, like, we landed on something really nice. And, uh, and, and, you know, along with that kind of process, the idea of smoking some of these same leaves. We do that too, guys. We do, we do it. And it's crazy, you know, because someone rolled up a bunch of leaves that were dried out and they were all mashed up and lit them on fire and then sucked in all the smoke and was like, that made me feel different. <laughs> that is crazy. Uh, but I truly think that... Um, one of the most uh, insane things to me about smoking is uh, the idea that people do it through the winter. Like, if I'm ever on my way home and it's really fucking cold outside and I see someone, like, without gloves on, like, <laughs> clutching a cigarette outside of a bar, I'm like, God, I am so glad I don't have an addiction like that. I played Pokemon Go through the whole winter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the only real thing that I got out of that addiction is uh, the attempt to catch them all. So, who am I to say, you know? Everybody, like the things you like, be addicted to the things that you're addicted to, and um, <laughs> stay, try, just try to stay warm when you do it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary Beth Smith. Mary Beth, I like your shoes as well. So, let's, I want to go back to that catcalling point for a second. Animorphs might be one of the only places where catcalling is actually okay. Does one of the characters turn into a cat? Oh, God. <laughs> 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 you guys, you see where I'm going with this. Oh, look at that. It's layers, guys. <laughs> layers. All intentional. Next up. I have taken more trips with this man than anybody else. Starting in 2002, we have almost gone on road trips yearly. Uh, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. We missed a few in the middle because we were dumb. And we are like, oh, once we get out of college, we can't have fun. Then we realized that you can have more fun when you're out of college. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to say, like, fuck you to other responsibilities. And this guy's really good at that. He also... <laughs> So many levels. Uh, you, you quit jobs to go on vacation. I mean, yeah, that's kind of my thing. <laughs> I, I want to make sure I have enough vacation time to go on vacation, and then when I don't have vacation time, I just kind of have to quit so I can get more vacation time. I mean, that's that, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much my thing. But um, yeah, Eric, we've been on so many trips together, and when you first asked me. To, to speak today, I was like, no! <laughs> like, this is not something that I do. <laughs> I'm very nervous, and this is the first time I'm on the stage, so bear with me, guys. So, with all of my travels, there's been a, a unifying theme. And that is the pursuit of a specific treat. Now, Eric and Dwight can both attest to this, since they've witnessed it firsthand on our road trips together. I've searched for 
gelato in Los Angeles, looked for donuts in Portland, and found the one crepe place in all of New Orleans. <laughs> There's really only one. Like, the Frenchest places of all America, there's only one great place. And God forbid if you ask a local, because I attempted to. We were at a bar in a mall, and I was getting, I was getting fed up with uh, trying to find crepes. I really just wanted one that was like filled with Nutella, bananas, you know, the perfect crepe. And she turns to me, and she's like, oh, you, you could go to this place, it's called IHOP. IHOP? I didn't come to the French Quarter for IHOP. So yeah, I'm not sure how this tradition really started, me trying to find these sweet treats on these trips, but it certainly has taken me on some interesting adventures, and the most recent being a bike ride across Iowa. Yeah, I know, you heard me, right? A, a bike ride across Iowa. That's fucking crazy. That is fucking insane. Um, but yes, I actually did ride my bike across Iowa. I still can't believe it myself. I've actually done this twice now, surprisingly. Um, and if you would have asked me if this three years ago, I probably would have laughed in your face. <laughs> Only because my boyfriend Mark, three years ago, after our first 10-mile ride, I told him I would never be the person who would enjoy riding more than 10 miles at one time. Mind you, this was when I was on the ground, sprawled out with the bike on top of me because I was so exhausted, I fell over. But now I'm here telling you that I rode, uh, rode over 400 miles. The ride itself is called RAGBRAI, which stands for the Register's Annual Bike Ride Across Iowa. And it started 45 years ago by two journalists of uh, Des Moines, Iowa Register paper. The ride is not a race. You ride at your leisure, and you discover all these small little cute towns in Iowa, and it's really great. Um, and it's over a course of a week, and it's probably the hottest week ever. It's the last week of July, so it's in the 90s, you know, low, low hundreds, maybe. Um, and you ride anywhere from 40 to 70 miles a day. The route takes you through that, you know... Iowa scenic uh, cornfields with the bright hot sun uh, beating on your back. You know, every day you wake up at five o'clock in the morning, starting your ride um, for the next eight hours. I mean, it sounds like the perfect vacation. <laughs> like literally, like the perfect vacation. Mark sold it to me so well. It just was, it was like, I have to do this. <laughs> but seriously, this is why it took him two years to convince me to go. <laughs> It didn't sound like a relaxing trip at all. And I had a few vacation days, as you heard from Eric. <laughs> Those are precious to me. <laughs> and ironically, actually, actually, now that I think about it, the only reason why I went on the, besides, besides, <laughs> one of the reasons why I went on it is because I recently quit my corporate job. <laughs> and I didn't really have a reason not to go on it. But anyways. Um, so, you know, it, you know, it does sound like, you know, a death march, pretty much. So <laughs> I was really hesitant to go. But, you know, because I didn't have a job and I love food and all these other things, um, you know, he was really smart about convincing me um, because he actually reminded me that you needed to eat constantly in order to survive. <laughs> 
Um, every 10 miles, every 10 to 20 miles, you stop and eat because you purely just need the energy. I mean, he was burning thousands and thousands of calories to make it through each day. Like from sun, sunrise to sundown, you are just eating nonstop. And this sounded awesome. <laughs> I slowly forgot the reasons why I didn't want to go. He told me of the pancakes, French toast, and breakfast burritos in the morning. Yes, all three of those at once, by the way. Um, the pork chops, pizzas, grilled corn for lunch and then spaghetti dinners piled high with homemade meat sauce and breadsticks. But what really got me were the sweets. There was ice cream, lemonade slushies, cakes, brownies, everything in between. I mean, it sounded like a a dream. Like, why would I not want to go besides the eight hours of riding the bike, 40 to 70 miles a day in the 90 degree weather and cornfields. Um... But to be honest, it was the ice cream that really convinced, convinced me that I needed to go. My first year, at least. And I was, like, literally a kid in a candy shop, like, all over the place. Like, I didn't focus on just ice cream or gelato or any of those other things I pre- previously did. I was just all over the place. But it wasn't really until my second year that I honed my palate and discovered the next big pursuit. Pie. <laughs> now, I blame the Amish. No, don't get me wrong. Them with their superb pie baking skills and their strategic shop placement, you know what they do? What they do is, oh, it's just. So they plant themselves at the top of the largest hill. So as you're busting your ass getting up this hill, you're like exhausted, and of course, you just, you have to stop. And there they are, luring you in with the smells of these sweet pies. I mean, it's incredible. They are geniuses, because you have to stop and you have to eat pie. And this was the first day, and it was was not the last day, but it was definitely (laughs) the the gateway drug of pies. Um, And they got me hooked. I mean, the wonderful flaky butter crust and the sweet raspberry filling was just amazing. And I knew from that moment forward, I would focus all my efforts on obtaining all the pie I could get. (laughs) Fortunately, it wasn't that hard at all in Iowa to (laughs) get pie. Uh, Everywhere we stopped, literally everywhere we stopped, every town, every... uh, Every roadside shop, every church had a bake sale, every lodge had some sort of pie inside. Like, every kind of pie, too. I, you know, it's not just like the gateway pies, like I said, like apple or pumpkin, but they have like gooseberry pies. They have like these oatmeal chocolate chip weird, what, I mean like buttermilk pies. I've never had a buttermilk pie before. It was like, it's, it's not that great. I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> it's like this weird custard sort of like... But I, besides the point. Um, and so, like, I, I began, I had this tunnel vision of just pies. And uh, I, was, I was having about three pieces a day. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually made it my goal to have at least, at least that many pies a day. <laughs> and actually, one day, I couldn't find pie. It was a Wednesday. I vividly remember this. <laughs> because, let me tell you, uh, I, I, pie was literally everywhere and I couldn't find it that one day so the next day I made up and made sure I had six 
one, one of the women riding with us became really concerned because I was eating two slices at a time. <laughs> I mean, I told her I was burning it off, so it was okay, right? Um, and of course I Instagram them all. I mean, I usually take photos of anything else. <laughs> I, I have a week-long worth of pies in my feed, and it, it's 21 to be exact. Not only that, but I named them and gave them all stories inspired by the old ladies that made them. <laughs> so here are a few of my favorite pies that, um, that I had along the way. Uh, Beatrice, who is a pecan from Diagonal, Iowa, she votes Democrat but tells her husband she's a Republican. <laughs> Maud is a chocolate cr cream from Atumwa, Iowa. She saves her emails by printing them. <laughs> Barb is a Dutch apple, Dutch apple from New York, Iowa. She doesn't understand why her son and his roommate adopted a baby girl. <laughs> And, and, and one of my faves, Dolores, who's a strawberry, from, uh, strawberry rhubarb from Elvina, Iowa. Her son is a pescatarian, but she tells all her friends he's a presbyterian. <laughs> so everyone really enjoyed these, so much so that I've continued my quest for pies beyond just ragbari. It has now surpassed the ranks of the gelatos and donuts of my life. <laughs> So, Eric, basically, and anyone else who travels with me, just warning you now, anywhere we go, Pi will definitely be a part of it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Troy Hayes. I couldn't imagine doing the show without you, dude. Uh, I really actually love your sweet tooth because it gives the trip direction, you know? Like, when we uh, it's true, like, when we don't know what to do, it's like, well, let's go find what Troy is hungry for. <laughs> from there. So in LA this past year we went to this place called the Pie Hole like, like three or four times. It was amazing. I loved it. Thank you Troy. I'm going to do something irregular and do plugs before I tell my story because my story is going to lead to the end of the show. So what you have just seen is the Nerdlogs presents your stories. We are about to embark on a two week tour. When I say we I mean me. Only me. <laughs> Guys any of you are welcome to join P.S. You will have to share room with a dog. That is all. Um, here is how you can help the tour. You can tell your friends in cities that I am going to. Uh, you can, if you, uh, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash nerdalogs. Everyone who donates at the $5 level or above uh, will have day after access to all the episodes we record. Everybody else has to wait until they actually come out, which might take months, actually, because I'm going to burn through a lot on the road here. Um, so if you already donate, you're already going to get those. So thank you all to those of you who do. Uh, also, yeah, unlike most of you, well... So your stories typically has been a free show. We are actually changing that. We're moving to the Beat Kitchen for our official May show, and we're going to start featuring a lot of like philanthropic organizations, and we're going to do a $5 suggested donation. Uh, tonight, I selfishly have a $5 suggested donation because I need gas and food money. So if you would like to uh, pay $5 for this show, there's a bucket on the table when you leave. You can do that. If you don't want to, you don't have it. That's also totally cool. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. Okay, I think that's all the plugs I want to do. So now, 
Oh my god, how could I not mention this? Thank you, Dwight. Uh, Troy's Instagram, please, he didn't want to brand himself too hard because it's, you know, the story is what matters, but I'm going to do it for him. Follow Pies Across America on Instagram. It is my favorite Instagram account. There are so many amazing pies. It's really good. Isn't it good? Okay. Thank you, Troy. Thank you, everybody. Now uh, now I'll talk for a minute because I feel like I should. So I guess uh, the question is probably why. Why am I doing any of this? Why did I quit my job? Why am I going on tour for two weeks, having only at the most two to three weeks to plan this? Well, uh, I'll try to tell you in a succinct way, but I had notes and I didn't bring them. So this might be a little meandering, but we're going to get there, guys. We're going to get there. So let's talk about the job first. Um, I told a story about getting my job on this podcast a few years ago, so I should probably talk about leaving it. Uh, I think, let me put, let's say this. I don't hate my job. I, I didn't end up hating it, but I think the feeling I end up leaving with is resentment, and maybe you guys can relate to that. I think that my job ended up costing me uh, a lot of opportunities, you know, because it's a retail job, and so you work weird hours, and I, I worked really weird hours. I worked till 10 o'clock most weeknights, and that kind of fucking kills your week, and, you know, everybody, literally everybody feels like they're overworked and underpaid, and I'm, I'm not trying to play victim, but... The Bureau of Labor Statistics is on my side. I was overworked and underpaid. And, uh, that's a great website, by the way. BLS.gov will tell you anything you need to know about why you should resent your job. Um, but I think about all the opportunities that I missed. You know, the women who said, well, I, you know, I don't really, I can't work around your schedule and I never got to go on dates with them. Or the friendships that I've let wither because I can't go do shit most of the time. And I can't think of a better metaphor than uh, a few weeks ago we did a show at the Soho House, which is this like hoity-toity private club in Chicago. And it was wonderful. And after the show, they were going to serve us all dinner. And I couldn't go to dinner because the show ran a little late and I had to go up to work and do a midnight release. And so instead of eating this amazing, like, beautifully prepared dinner at a private club in Chicago, I ate McDonald's in my car. And that is like the perfect metaphor for how I feel that my time at my job ended up affecting me. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on my employer. I, I really do end up, I, I like my boss a lot, but it just, it was toxic and I needed to go. And so I decided to go. Now... My friend Gary gave me this great saying from, I don't even remember who, leap in the net shall appear. Well, I quit back in December. I gave the uh, traditional five months notice. <laughs> yeah. All right, but real talk though, my boss could have had a year and he still wouldn't have been ready for me to leave. Uh, there's th thank you, there's three of my coworkers here and that's, uh, that's not a lie. But, thank you guys for coming by the way. But, uh, I thought I was going to go into podcast production professionally. I still might. I thought I wanted to move to L.A. Then I decided I don't really want to move to L.A. Um, so I think I'm going to stay here. But uh, I've got like three or four different prospective jobs in the horizon. But no one's pulled the trigger yet. And the one I felt best about, uh, who said they wanted me to start in June, which I was like, great, I'm going to enjoy the rest of May off. So that's why I decided to go on tour. Because like three weeks ago, I was like, well, fuck. If I have three weeks off, I can float three weeks without income. Let's have fun. Let's do something I always wanted to do. All right? And then Thursday, well after this is all planned, they called and they're like, hey, we don't need you till August. Cool. So I can't go that long without employment. So I'm pretty sure the net did appear and I have a backup. It's not a backup I'm easy, uh, eager to take, but it might come to that. But anyway, so I'm going out on the road with no real job, no real plan for what I do when I get back. I don't know, why. so why am I really doing this? Well, 
I, I mentioned that I think parts of me have withered because of this job, and I think something that has withered is is kind of my sense of of like myself and my stories. Like I worked fucking fifty hours a week, fifty to sixty hours a week for the last three and a half years. That and you don't have a lot of time to do other shit. Like I feel like I've lost. Like, I can't really think of that many stories I have to tell, which is crazy, right? Like, everybody has stories, and I'm, I can't think of any. So I'm challenging myself to get out there with my dog and, and to fucking think of what, I, what has happened to me and to, like, put my life into narrative chunks that I can then share with people, and hopefully that'll help me reclaim something of what I feel like I've lost. That's the hope. Right now, this is probably stupid, and it's like 5,000 miles on an old-ass car, and I'm not making nearly enough per episode to bankroll this, so I'm going to go a little bit in the red, but I really feel like it's important, and looking at my life, and I, I don't think I'll ever have another chance to do this, so I wanted to make sure to get it in now. And there is, there is one more reason I wanted to do this, and it relates to Jimmy Fallon, if you guys can believe it. <laughs> I, now, I know it's cool to hate Jimmy Fallon. I get that. And I understand that, oh, he humanized, the, you know, this, this fucking monster we have in the White House. And that's a problem. I'm not trying to excuse that he, he helped normalize this fucking terror that we're all living with. But I swear to God, guys, Jimmy Fallon only does comedy because he wants to be a rock star. Did you see his Saturday Night Live monologue? All he did was fucking sing a David Bowie song with it people dancing. I, I thought it was great. It was fine. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was awesome. I, and I, I all right. You can you can come back up here later. I really loved it, and I I think I mean if you look at the way he's put together his late night show, he easily has the best band in late night because it's the fucking you know it's the roots. Come on, that's crazy. Like the guests he has, he has whole weeks devoted to like Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen. Like he, I, I'm convinced he only does comedy because that's what he's good at. He's not good enough to be a rock star, but he does comedy because that's the closest he can get to that feeling. And guys, I fucking empathize with that so hard because I am not good enough to be a rock and roll star, but being out there for two weeks, it sure as fuck is going to make me feel like one. So if I can get Dwight and Katie and Chris back up here, please. All right. This is a song you've heard me play a million times before. And yet, what could be more appropriate? Guys, thank you all for coming. I'm going to take these, this, this love uh, out on the road with me. And uh, I'll see you guys maybe at the Beat Kitchen on the 21st. One, two, three, four.
Grab your hands and throw some velvet ribs. Grab your hands to my edges. Together we could break this trap. The run till we drop, it will never look back. Oh, will you walk with me on the wire? Cause maybe I'm a scared and lonely rider. Wanna know how we feel? Wanna know love is wild? Wanna know when love is real? Oh, can you show me? Yeah, baby. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.